listening to the English language news of Khan, the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. It's 8 p.m. in Israel, Sunday, March 3rd, 2024. In the headlines, Adiyev launches a broader offensive in Khan Yunus as schools reopen in Sderot. A reservist wounded in the Gaza explosion that killed three soldiers over the weekend has died of his wounds. Hostage ceasefire talks at a dead end as Israel holds back a delegation to Cairo talks until Hamas provides a list of living hostages. Prime Minister Netanyahu orders Israeli embassy not to coordinate a visit to Washington by Minister Benny Gantz. Grandson of Hezbollah leader Nasrallah reportedly killed in an Israeli airstrike against Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon. Israel is changing the words of a song submitted to the Eurovision after it rejected two earlier songs for being too political. And the weather warmer with local rain. Good evening, this is Aryeh O'Sullivan with the news. Day 149 of the Israel-Hamas war. IDF forces from the 98th Division have launched a broad offensive in western Khan Yunus in the southern Gaza Strip. The operation, or blitz according to Reuters, opened with a heavy air bombardment last night when IDF fighter aircraft assisted by artillery forces pounded some 50 terror targets in a span of just six minutes. The IDF says the aim of the mission is to intensify operational achievements, destroy terror infrastructure, and eliminate terrorists who were operating from civilian facilities. The IDF continues to investigate the circumstances of Friday's blast in a booby-trap building in Han Yunus that killed three IDF forces from the Kfir Brigade and wounded 14 others, six of them seriously. Funerals were held today for the fallen soldiers. The funeral of Sergeant Dolev Malka, age 19, of Shlomi was this morning in the military cemetery of his hometown. Sergeant Afik Terry, 19, of Rehovot, was laid to rest this afternoon in the city's military cemetery. Sergeant Inon Yitzchak, 20, of Mitzpah Ramon, was buried last night in the Mount Herzl Military Cemetery in Jerusalem. The Yitzchak family in the city, which is deep in the Negev, was escorted to the road out of town last night by neighbors and residents of the city. The young soldiers had been in a squad commander's course and only on Thursday were dispatched to the Gaza Strip for the first time in their short military service. Less than 24 hours later, they were dead. This afternoon... Warrant Officer Denis Yeskimov, age 33, from Beersheba, died of his wounds he received yesterday in the southern Gaza Strip. He was buried in the military cemetery in his city. The IDF says it has coordinated a total of 21 airdrops in the Gaza Strip in recent weeks by the United States, Jordan, France, the UAE, and Egypt, with more than 450 packages of food and medical aid distributed to the Palestinian civilians. The latest airdrop was carried out on Saturday by the U.S. and Jordan. In an English-language video statement, the IDF spokesperson, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, also said that the IDF probe into Thursday's incident in which Gazan civilians were trampled to death and injured as they swarmed an aid convoy in the enclave has confirmed that no strike was carried out by the IDF toward the convoy. Palestinians say that more than 100 people were killed in the incident. In the early hours of Thursday morning, the Israel Defense Forces facilitated a humanitarian operation to help bring aid to civilians in northern Gaza. This was the fourth night in a row that we facilitated such an operation because we want humanitarian aid to reach Gazan civilians in need. You see, our war is not against the people of Gaza. Our war is against Hamas. It is Hamas who started this war on October 7th. It is Hamas that had caused immense suffering to civilians on both sides of the border. 
The IDF has concluded an initial review of the unfortunate incident where Gazan civilians were trampled to death and injured as they charged to the aid convoy. Our initial review has confirmed that no strike was carried out by the IDF towards the aid convoy. The majority of Palestinians were killed or injured as a result of the stampede from the information we gathered from the commanders and forces on the ground. Our initial review has indicated that following the warning shots fired to disperse the stampede and after our forces had started retreating, several looters approached our forces and posed an immediate threat to them. According to the initial review, the soldiers responded towards several individuals. As a professional military committed to international law, we are committed to examining our operations thoroughly. We have opened an inquiry to examine the incident further, which will help us reduce the risk of such a tragic incident from occurring again during one of our humanitarian operations. The incident will be examined in the fact-finding and assessment mechanism, an independent, professional and expert body. For the sake of transparency, we will share updates as our examination develops, hopefully, in the coming days. I want to make something clear. Our war is against Hamas, not against the people of Gaza. This is why we are facilitating aid, creating humanitarian corridors, establishing unilateral humanitarian pauses, and exercising caution in our use of force. Israel and the international community are working together to enable the entry and distribution of humanitarian aid to the residents of Gaza. We coordinated an airdrop of humanitarian aid into Gaza, conducted by the United States Central Command and the Royal Jordanian Air Force. This is an important effort. We encourage all efforts, all of them, to help alleviate the suffering of civilians in Gaza. We have coordinated a total of 21 airdrops in northern Gaza in collaboration with France, the UAE, Jordan, Egypt, and the United States. We will continue expanding our humanitarian efforts to the civilians' population in Gaza while we fulfill our goals of freeing our hostages from Hamas and freeing Gaza from Hamas. IDF spokesperson Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari. In the north, an anti-tank rocket was fired towards Matula from Lebanon. There were no injuries. Early this morning, Hezbollah claimed responsibility for firing a rocket at the Israeli border community of Shlomi. There were no injuries or damage there either. In the Galilee Panhandle, sirens were sounded of a suspected infiltration of an aerial vehicle this evening. A counter reporter says that the UFO was downed by an Iron Dome interceptor. Meanwhile, reports from Lebanon say that among the three Hezbollah members who were killed by an Israeli airstrike in southern Lebanon yesterday was a grandson of Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah. According to the Syrian opposition radio, voice of the capital, Abbas Ahmad Khalil was a member of the Imam Hussein division. The IDF said that it targeted a vehicle in which a number of terrorists who fired rockets into Israel were driving. Former head of IDF intelligence, Reserve Major General Aaron Zevi Farkash, said that their war against Hezbollah was inevitable. 
He told Khan that the only way to return the residents of the north to their homes is through the use of force. He said he didn't see Nasrallah backing down even after the beatings Hezbollah has taken in recent months. He said there was an opportunity now to use force and political pressure to distance Hezbollah fighters from the border. Deadlock in negotiations on a hostage deal. Hamas gave only a partial answer, and in Israel, Israel has decided not to send delegation to Cairo, where mediators from Qatar and the United States are meeting with Hamas officials to negotiate a temporary Gaza ceasefire and a hostage release. The Hamas delegation is led by Gaza leader Yihya Sinwar's deputy, Khalil al-Haya. Israel is not participating at this juncture. Despite Arab media reports that Israel would be sending a delegation to Cairo today, Jerusalem stressed it will not dispatch representatives to the Egyptian capital or any other place before receiving an official Hamas response to the framework forged in the previous Paris talks. Specifically, Israel is demanding that Hamas gives a list of hostages who would be freed in the deal and Hamas formula for an exchange of jailed Palestinian terrorists for hostages. And meanwhile, a Hamas source was quoted by the French news agency AFP that it is possible to reach a ceasefire within a day or two if Israel agrees to Hamas's demands, including the return of displaced Gazans to the northern Gaza Strip and expanding humanitarian aid. A political source in Israel said that until there are real and concrete answers from Hamas, there's no point in sending a delegation to Cairo. A senior U.S. official said over the weekend that the framework for a six-week pause in fighting was in place with Israel's agreement, and now it all depends on Hamas agreeing to release hostages. There are 134 captives still being held in Gaza Strip. Families of the hostages, former captives, and supporters demonstrated in Jerusalem last night, urging the government not to miss the opportunity to reach a deal. The rally was the culmination of a four-day march that began in the Gaza periphery. Political tensions. A Khan reporter says that the Israeli embassy in Washington was instructed not to facilitate cabinet minister and war cabinet member Benny Gantz's trip to the United States after the National Unity Party leader's visit was not authorized by the prime minister. Additionally, Israel's ambassador to Washington, Michael Herzog, will not take part in the visit. A White House official said over the weekend that Gantz is scheduled to meet U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris on Monday. The U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is also expected to take part. Gantz, who is seen as the main political rival to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, is said to be interested in an encounter with U.S. President Joe Biden. Prime Minister Netanyahu, who has not yet been visited, has not yet visited the White House since being re-elected last year. Knesset member Orit Farkas Cohen from the National Unity Party, Gantz's party, told Khan that the government should respect the American administration more. White House veteran and Middle East expert Elliot Abrams is currently a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and the chair of the Tikva U.S. Jewish Think Tank. In a conversation with Tikva, he addressed the growing demand by the Biden administration and Western European countries for the implementation of a two-state solution in response to the October 7th massacre. Well, it is certainly very strange. The Israeli reaction is the logical one. And I really mean the Israeli, not the Israeli government, uh, because we've heard strong statements from President Herzog, former leader of the Labor Party, from Benny Gantz, um, from the entire Israeli cabinet. This is crazy to talk about right now. So uh, your question is a good one. Why are, we, why are we hearing about it? And we're hearing about it from the West. We're hearing about it from the U.N. Secretary General and the German Foreign Minister and the British Foreign Secretary and the American Secretary of State. And it's, it's unanimous. 
Um, I think it's partly because they don't have any other idea. They've had this idea for 30 years. Um, in a way, they believe it dates back to the Oslo Accords in the early 90s, which is not quite right. I mean, the person who you know, agreed to those was Yitzhak Rabin, who said pretty clearly that he thought there ought to be a Palestinian entity less than a state, uh, a view which, with which I would associate myself. Um, he was in favor of partition, but not statehood. I think what's happened here in the West is people, uh, they don't have an idea. They really don't. I mean, you go back to the State Department and people are pulling out the drawers and going down to the, you know, the what's underneath. Uh, American officials have been saying this for about 30 years um, and have not taken the time to assess whether it's reasonable to promote it now or reasonable to promote it at all. It's it's ideology. It's dogma. And it has been recycled, I would argue, almost unthinkingly. The Secretary of State uh, used the term uh, time-bound, irreversible path to a Palestinian state. Think about that for a minute. That is, we will set a date and nothing will be allowed to change it. No conditionality. Uh when we in the um, Bush administration, he said that I, th- I think on a visit to Israel, he said it in Israel, and I shouldn't say he said it; he read it. It was in a prepared speech. Compare that to twenty years ago when the Bush administration did the so-called roadmap, whose name was a performance-based roadmap. Uh, performance and conditionality mm-hmm. uh, seems to be uh, being tossed tossed away. I mean, just to spell this out, that that means that the roadmap operated according to the idea that uh, various various parties and sides had to meet certain criteria along the way, and if they failed to meet those criteria, there were exit ramps preventing the uh, not an irrevocable a uh, not the uh, glide path toward a state, but glide path toward disaster. Well, one of the reasons I think conditionality is not being talked about much is that the diplomats and political leaders do not believe that the Palestinians will meet conditions that are set. So if you think I have to do something and I have domestic politics, and we should mention that, that I need to care about, I better just say statehood and let's start getting there without uh, reference to conditionality that would slow us down or stop us. And I think if you just give a moment's thought to French politics in a country that's now 20% Muslim and British politics and American politics, people talk about the president will lose Michigan. Domestic politics, I think, is clearly uh, an ingredient here. Yeah, so I would just introduce that subject like this. Um, Looked at from the perspective of the reality in the region. Um, it is puzzling to understand how this proposal solves the problems that we see after October 7th. But the way to understand a political proposal like this is to ask who benefits. And uh, the question would seem to be from the Biden administration's point of view, our domestic political fortunes uh, stand to benefit from this proposal. So I, I don't I know if that's true. That. I don't know if that's true, but but you should just unpack... What you, how you understand their rationale? Well, let, let me say there's one other benefit. Maybe there's a political benefit. Uh, 
The other is a benefit to terrorists and terrorism. If Western governments now try to, they are trying to cram down a a Palestinian state down Israeli throats. This is a reward for October 7th. It wasn't going to happen if you go back to the beginning of October. Mm -hmm. Now people are saying it should happen. What's changed? A massive, vicious, brutal terrorist attack. I can hardly think of a better reward for terrorism than to say, okay, the real reaction to October 7th will be to force the creation of a Palestinian state. But I go back also and say, I think people are not thoughtful about this. What What's the magic answer? We need a solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. By the way, a very American sort mm-hmm. of thought. It's a problem. Oh, we need a solution. We got a solution. Here it is. The two-state solution. Let's do it. Um, without any serious consideration, I've heard none from the U.S. government, of what does that really mean? What are the aspects of Palestinian statehood? What are we talking about when we talk about Palestinian statehood? It's, I mean, in a way, it's gravely damaging to Israel. But in another way, it's unserious. It's, it's just a slogan. Well, you wrote a, uh, an excellent essay earlier this month in Tablet called The Two-State Delusion. And uh, maybe that the that essay can, can inform our attempt now to try to soberly pick apart just why that's so delusional. Really, what is wrong with the idea of promulgating a two-state solution at this moment? And I suppose the first question I'd ask is uh, what consideration might be given to the previous re- to, to the reasons that such a solution has not come about up until now. It's, it's a good way to, um, to start the discussion. What are the problems? Uh, let's take an obvious one, borders. What are the borders of that state? Uh, here's an example. One border question is Jerusalem. Are we really in favor of dividing Jerusalem again? Think about this. Most American tourists who go to the old city go in the Jaffa Gate. Then on your right is the Armenian Quarter. Right there is the Tower of David or David's Citadel. On your left is the Christian Quarter. And then you walk through the soup to get, or maybe around through the Armenian Quarter, to get to the Western Wall. So, wait a minute. The Muslim Quarter and the Christian Quarter and the Armenian Quarter, that's going to be Palestine? And by the way, is anybody asking the Armenians or other Christians, do they want to be in Palestine? Um, The last round of negotiations on borders, 2008, I participated in, I remember the Palestinian negotiator, Abu Allah, saying, of course, Ariel has to go. Ariel. Ariel is a city of 20,000. So the borders question is a beginning of just noting the problem. Are 200,000 settlers going to be expelled from their homes? Uh, Raises another question. Will Palestine have to be Will there be not one Jew allowed to live there? And then you get to the deeper border question, which is Jerusalem, uh, a border question, and of course, much more. So that's first. Then let's turn to the question of, of one thing the U.S. government says, it has to be a demilitarized state. Well, um, does anybody really believe that? What does that mean? It won't have an army. Okay, it doesn't have an army has to have a police force, right? What if the police want armored vehicles? Many American police forces have them. Will they be allowed to do that? Really? 
What if they want training from Syria? What if they want, what if this new state wants a, an agreement of some kind with Iran or Russia, Russia on the Security Council? Will that be permitted? White House veteran and Middle East expert Elliot Abrams. Highway 4 in B'nai Brock was blocked by protesters uh, when hundreds of ultra-Orthodox youth demonstrated this afternoon against conscription into the IDF. Police say that the demonstration was illegal and that the demonstrators confronted the police, laid down under the cars and called the police Nazis. In the video that was circulated, a policewoman is seen kicking one of the protesters. At an anti-government protest in Tel Aviv last night, there were confrontations between police and several demonstrators who blocked Begin Boulevard and the Ayalon Freeway. Seven protesters were detained. Police said that they have arrested the driver who was photographed last night driving with one of the protesters who blocked the Ayalon lanes lying on the hood of his car. The police say that the driver, a 28-year-old resident of Jerusalem, is suspected of endangering human life. The suspect protester who blocked the road and violated the order was also summoned for questioning. Schools reopened this morning in the western Negev community of Sterot, nearly five months after October 7th Hamas massacre. The municipal official in charge of education, Elad Kalimi, told Khan that the knowledge that the IDF is continuing to operate in the Gaza Strip makes it a bit easier for residents to return. And he appealed to the government not to end the war until its objectives are achieved. He said classes were resuming in 100 educational institutions in the town, kindergartens and schools. And Sterot Mayor Alon Davidi told Khan that to date about a quarter to a third of the community's residents have returned. Well, life is like a school, only the opposite. In school, they teach you, and then you're tested. In life, you're tested, and then you learn a lesson. Well, here's a song called Shi'ur Moledet, A Lesson on the Homeland by Kaveret. <laughs>
Mellanox founder Eyal Waldman, whose nomination for an Israel Prize allegedly led to the scrapping of a number of award categories this year, told the Knesset Science Committee this morning that he had been told that an associate of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu worked to ensure he would not get the nod for the award. Waldman, a prominent government critic whose daughter and her partner were murdered at the Nova Festival Massacre on October 7th, charged that businessman Shlomi Fogel exerted heavy pressure on the members of the nominating committee so that they would recommend another candidate from the right sector. The entrepreneur said that his potential nomination for the award did not go down well with Education Minister Yoav Kish, the Prime Minister's associates, and perhaps the Prime Minister himself. Kish, whose ministry is responsible for the annual prize, decided to shrink the award to a couple of war-related categories this year, reportedly in order to prevent Wildman from winning after the selection committee would not back down. Well, sources close to Fogel, Sholmi Fogel, said in response to the accusations that Waldman is one of the senior They said that Waldman is one of the senior high-tech figures in Israel and certainly worthy of an Israel prize. Fogo has no connections to the decision to cancel the prize this year, they said. The IDF has arrested and handed over to the Shin Bet, a Palestinian suspected of stabbing and moderately wounding an Israeli man in the Arab town of Dahariya near Hebron in Judea. The wife, the man's wife said that he had gone to the Palestinian town to see a doctor for medical problems that physicians in Israel had been unable to help him with. He was attacked on his way out of the office. The IDF has reiterated that it is forbidden and dangerous for Israeli citizens to enter Area A in the West Bank. Searches continue in the area of Tzvat for the missing nine-year-old girl, Himanut Kaisau. She was last seen entering the absorption center in the city last Sunday evening, where her family said she went to distribute municipal election leaflets door-to-door. The deputy head of the Tzvat police station said that police still have no leads in the search. And the body of a woman was found in a business in Naharia. Police suspect criminal motives. It was the second suspected murder of a woman. Earlier, a woman was stabbed to death in her car in the Arab town of Iblin, also in the north. Her husband later turned himself into police. This evening, police reported that a man also in Iblin was shot to death in a store. There were, there were no further details, but later reports said it was probably related to criminal background. And now, midway look at the major news headlines today. IDF launches a broader offensive in Khan Yunus as schools reopen in Sterot. A reservist wounded in the Gaza explosion that killed three soldiers over the weekend has died of his wounds. Hostage ceasefire talks are at a dead end as Israel holds back its delegation to Cairo talks until Hamas provides a list of living hostages. Prime Minister Netanyahu has ordered Israeli embassy not to coordinate the visit to Washington by Minister Benny Gantz. Grandson of the Hezbollah leader Nasrallah is reportedly killed in an Israeli airstrike against Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon. And Israel is changing the words of a song submitted to Eurovision after it rejected two earlier songs for being too political. And the weather warmer with local rain. In Zurich, Switzerland, police have arrested a teenager on suspicion of stabbing and critically wounding an Orthodox Jewish man on the streets of the city. Zurich police said that they suspect anti-Semitism as the motive in the stabbing attack that occurred last night. Police described the perpetrator as a 15-year-old Swiss citizen and said they arrested him at the scene. The Swiss Organization of Jewish Communities said it was deeply shocked that a community member fell victim to such an attack. The suspected stabber reportedly declared his affiliation with the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade and told his family that it was a Muslim duty to attack Jews. During the attack, he shouted Allahu Akbar and death to the Jews. 
And in the United Kingdom, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak warned that extremists aim to tear apart the British people in the wake of the October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel. His comments came after critics accused the conservative British Prime Minister of attempting to delegitimize the right to peacefully protest. Mass protests have drawn hundreds of thousands of people to central London almost weekly in support of Hamas and calling for a ceasefire. Sunak made his call on the steps of 10 Downing Street. Let's have a listen. In recent weeks and months, we have seen a shocking increase in extremist disruption and criminality. What started as protests on our streets has descended into intimidation, threats and planned acts of violence. Jewish children fearful to wear their school uniform, lest it reveal their identity. Muslim women abused in the street for the actions of a terrorist group they have no connection with. Now our democracy itself is a target. Council meetings and local events have been stormed. MPs do not feel safe in their homes. Long-standing parliamentary conventions have been upended because of safety concerns. And it is beyond alarming that last night the Rochdale by-election returned a candidate who dismisses the horror of what happened on October the 7th, who glorifies Hezbollah and is endorsed by Nick Griffin, the racist former leader of the BNP. I need to speak to you all this evening because this situation has gone on long enough and demands a response not just from government, but from all of us. Membership of our society is contingent on some simple things, that you abide by the rule of law and that change can only come through the peaceful democratic process. Threats of violence and intimidation are alien to our way of doing things. They must be resisted at all times. Nearly everyone in Britain supports these basic values, but there are small and vocal hostile groups who do not. Islamist extremists and the far right feed off and embolden each other. They are equally desperate to pretend that their violence is somehow justified when actually these groups are two sides of the same extremist coin. Islamist extremists and far-right groups are spreading a poison. That poison is extremism. It aims to drain us of our confidence in ourselves as a people and in our shared future, and we must be prepared to stand up for our shared values in all circumstances, no matter how difficult. And I respect that the police have a tough job in policing the protests we have seen and that they are operationally independent. But we must draw a line. Yes, you can march and protest with passion. You can demand the protection of civilian life. But no, you cannot call for violent jihad. There is no context in which it can be acceptable to beam anti-Semitic tropes onto Big Ben in the middle of a vote on Israel-Gaza. And there can be no cause that you can use to justify the support of a prescribed terrorist group like Hamas. And yes, you can freely criticise the actions of this government, or indeed any government. That is a fundamental democratic right. But no, you cannot use that as an excuse to call for the eradication of a state or any kind of hatred or anti-Semitism. And I say this to the police. We will back you when you take action. But if we are asking more of the police, we in government must also back up that call with action. 
To that end, this month the government will implement a new, robust framework for how it deals with this issue. To ensure that we are dealing with the root causes of this problem and that no extremist organisations or individuals are being lent legitimacy by their actions and interactions with central government. You cannot be part of our civic life if your agenda is to tear it down. The time has now come for us all to stand together to combat the forces of division and beat this poison. We must face down the extremists who would tear us apart. There must be leadership, not pandering or appeasement. If we do that, we can build on our great achievement in creating today's Britain, a country of kind, decent, tolerant people. We can make this a country in which we all feel a renewed sense of pride. This is our home. So let us go forward together, confident in our values and confident in our future. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Last week, the British Prime Minister announced £54 million of new funding to protect Jewish communities in Britain against rising anti-Semitism. And on Thursday, the Crown Prince William visited a London synagogue where he said he was extremely concerned about soaring anti-Semitism there. Alex Hearn, director of the Labour Against Anti-Semitism, said it was too little, too late, and more has needed to be done. It was positive to hear the speech, but it's four months too late. The Jewish community have been experiencing an explosion in hate crime, and there's been a rise in anti-Muslim attacks as well. Something needs to be done. Alex Hearn, Director of Labour Against Anti-Semitism in Britain. And the occupation. That's the tone from the president of the Sinn Féin party in Northern Ireland. She means, of course, the occupation of Northern Ireland by the British. Speaking at the Irish Unity Summit held in New York, Mary Lou MacDonald called loud and clear for a united Ireland. She said that the goal of her party is to take over the government in Northern Ireland and then reunify it with the Republic of Ireland. The former political wing of the Irish Republican Army is by far the most popular in Ireland. And by the way, she also called for the end of the vicious criminal onslaught by Israel on Gaza for the establishment of a Palestinian state. She did not mention the Hamas massacre of over 1,200 Israelis on October 7th. As an Irish Republican, I advocate for a united Ireland. You see, more and more people are now seriously considering the future and the shape of constitutional change. And friends, the reunification of Ireland is firmly on the table. You see, there's a new kid on the block. Sinn Féin leads the opposition. We do so with vision, determination and energy. And we're not stopping there. We want to be in government. We want to lead government. A general election is approaching and our goal remains the formation of a government of change that puts reunification at the very heart of our agenda. One of the greatest duties of political leaders is to build nations in which our young people can prosper. In our young people, we have everything we need to chart a successful future for our country. Today, the beleaguered, besieged, impoverished refugee population of Gaza endure unimaginable suffering. This vicious, 
criminal onslaught must stop now. Those funding these atrocities must stop now. All hostages must be released. We need, we need an immediate ceasefire. We need that now. of a peace process based on international law, based on the two-state solution, with the aim of achieving self-determination and freedom for the Palestinians and a secure Israel. We will shape the future, a new united Ireland and a nation home for everyone. President of the Sinn Féin party in Northern Ireland, Mary Lou Macdonald. Last month, Northern Ireland placed an Irish nationalist Sinn Féin leader who comes from a Catholic family of hardcore members of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, and they assumed the leadership despite a boycott from the Protestant Unionists. The U.S. race for the White House. Former President Donald Trump has handily won Republican primaries in three more states, defeating Nikki Haley, the remaining rival for the party's presidential nomination. Trump won in Michigan, Missouri, and Idaho. We'll have more news coming up, but first this song, Ezra Baderich, Help is on the Way by Noam Rotem. כל מי ששבר שמירה אחרי עשר שעות על הרגליים כל מי שנרכב באיזה תא, כל מי שנתנו לו חודשיים עזרה בדרך, עזרה בדרך שלך עזרה בדרך, עזרה בדרך עזרה בדרך שלך כל מי שלא רואה לזה סוף כל מי שחי כמו עבד, כל מי שגדל ברחובות, כל מי שלקחו לה ילד, כל מי שוויתר על כליה בשביל להציל את היתר, כל מי שעכשיו בצבא, כל מי שעכשיו בבית ספר, עזרה בדרך, עזרה בדרך שלך. עזרה בדרך, עזרה בדרך, עזרה בדרך שלך. כל מי שעישן קופסה, כל מי שאני מכיר, כל מי שפעם עוד ניסה. כל מי ששילם על זה מחיר, כל מי ששפך דם במצב של זה הוא אני. כל מי שהוא שמאל רדיקל, כל מי שימין קיצוני. עזרה בדרך, עזרה בדרך שלך, עזרה בדרך, עזרה בדרך, עזרה בדרך שלך.
שאיבד את הכל, כל מי ששכח את הדרך, כל מי שבשוק האפור, כל מי שהיה פעם מלך, כל מי שנקרא מבפנים ובכל זאת בוגד בכל ערך, כל מי שזורק את החיים שהוא קיבל במתנה כל ערב. Noam Rotem. United Airlines today resumed flights between Israel and the United States, becoming the first American carrier to do so since U.S. Airlines canceled services with the outbreak of the October 7th war. For nearly five months, the Israeli airline El Al was the sole provider of flights between the two countries. United Airlines renewed operations between Tel Aviv and Newark, New Jersey, with service to other U.S. cities to be resumed based on ongoing safety assessments. Another U.S. carrier, Delta, currently plans to renew services to Israel from May. Khan reporter adds that the low-cost airline Wizz Air is also renewing flights to Israel today. Israel is changing the lyrics to the two songs it submitted as possible entries to the upcoming Eurovision Song Contest after they were both rejected by the EBU Supervising Committee on the grounds that they bear a political character due to the references to the October 7th Hamas attack. The writers of the song, October Rain and Dance Forever, will submit the new versions to the Israeli public broadcaster, Khan, which will send one of them back to the contest organizers. A week from today, Israel's slated contestants in Eurovision... Eden Golan will reveal the chosen song in a special Khan broadcast. Well, against the backdrop of rising electricity prices, Greenpeace Israel has put forward an initiative that guides local authorities on how to establish a municipal corporation to supply green and cheap electricity. According to the report, that is the basis of the initiative. The establishment of municipal electricity supply corporations will make it possible to provide a deep discount to consumers of up to 35% on electricity rates. These changes are now possible thanks to the recent reform of the electricity supply sector, which opens the market to competition. And specifically, a regulation that came into effect under which private consumers can purchase electricity from green energy providers and create competition in the market. Our reporter Nomi Sego heard more from Donna Cohen, head of climate and energy at Greenpeace Israel. So we are talking about our own energy project. This is the way that we named this project. And the idea is that the energy goes back to the hands of the municipalities. So we started this initiative at Greenpeace about a year ago as part of our work on the energy resilience and decentralizing of the electricity market. And like many other actors uh, in the energy uh, market, we recognize that the energy transition that we all aspire for, moving from centralized system based on fossil fuels to a system that has widespread renewable energy, it really involves engaging the local authorities. And we understood that the, the, this transition actually offers the municipalities a significant opportunity to act and to move towards energy independence. And in fact, do something that the local government in Israel actually failed to do, which is to, to achieve the um, 
renewable energy goals. So in concrete terms, what does this mean? So we are talking about the broad energy independence from municipalities that leverages the advantages the city has and takes into consideration the uh, residents, the domestic sector, the businesses, and um, and generates widespread social and environmental benefits. So we teamed up with the economist Gal Shafoni, who used to work as the regulator in the past in the Electricity Authority, and we built together a roadmap for municipalities to establish municipal energy supplier. So what does it mean? It means that a local authority will essentially bring the city electricity consumers, residents, and uh, businesses under its wings, and uh, residents and businesses will pay their electricity bill to the municipal supplier instead of the electricity, in, instead of the government electricity company, what's called Chavrat Hashmal. Are we talking about um, energy produced largely, you know, as the source by the electric company, or we're talking about solar panels? What is the source of the energy? What are we talking about? Yeah, so it's a few things. So one thing is becoming the supplier. It's very, it's everything is virtual. In fact, I don't have to produce the electricity myself in order to supply energy to you. But the supplying part um, offers many uh, economical uh, benefits for the residents. And the municipality will also, in, in addition to the supplying, will also use all of the public uh, assets that she has. And we're talking about roofs, we're talking about uh, parking lots, uh, and etc., and will um, build solar panels upon those um, upon those areas. Uh, as well as we are talking as well as uh, electric vehicles also, like a um, charging station for uh, for electric vehicle, and all like the um, accumulation of all those things together will enable the city to offer very great benefits for, for its citizens, and both the residentials and the businesses. Municipalities vary in their means, their resources, their socioeconomic levels, even their real estate landscape for some of the methods of producing energy. So how many municipalities is this seen as countrywide, certain municipalities? Does Greenpeace envision being capable of moving to this kind of a model? So the report itself, we started working with three local authorities, Afula, Petah Tikva, and Ashkelon. And we chose the three, those three municipalities because we wanted to have diversity. We wanted to show uh, different geographies, north, south, center, uh, diverse socioeconomic status, population, density. So basically, we took, we took into consideration a very um, diverse uh, municipalities. And we think that this model is actually... Um, applicable for many other municipalities in Israel and this is actually the vision that we have that as many as many municipalities as possible will use this model to uh, to enjoy all its, all its benefits now this is coming at a time actually that there's been a reform in the electric power sector here in Israel with Israeli consumers being able to individually choose to receive their power from other companies, not just the Israel Electric Company. So how does this integrate with this concurrent reform? So it's it's not exactly the same thing because the municipalities have something that the other suppliers don't have, which is a very easy uh, way of contact with its citizens. 
as well as a contact with the land. The municipality has a lot of land that can be used for PV, for solar system, and for uh, electricity, electric vehicle stations. And we showed in our report that the accumulation of all of those things together, the supplying and the solar PV and the electric vehicles, will enable the municipality to offer a very beautiful amount of a discount for its citizens. We are talking, according to the report, we're talking about up to 35% of discount on electricity bills for residents and businesses how, in the how, municipality. How does that work? How, how does that create the discount? So basically, the new municipal energy uh, supplier will have all of the income uh, that I referred to uh, before. And the municipality will align the, the residents and businesses uh, to the new municipal energy supplier. And in order for it to do so, in order for the consumers to actually uh, move towards a new supplier, it needs to suggest something for them. So the discount is, is basically is basically the way of the municipality to offer to its uh, consumers something that is attractive. And those amounts of uh, discount, as I said, 30, up to 35% of discount uh, that is worth something like 63 million uh, shekels per year, it's a, an accumulation of all of the income from the from supplying, from uh, using the land that the municipality has for solar PV, and for um, electrical electric vehicle uh, stations. How long would it take to put such an arrangement in place? Is there any projection? So as we showed in our report, it can take, if a municipality will decide to, to begin now, it can take up to two years to complete this transition. Many things can happen in the same time. Like you don't have to wait for for the municipality to create a huge amount of uh, solar power in its own land. You can just start and align the consumers and um, step by step in the meantime to create more solar panels, to create a storage system. Uh, but we are talking about two years in which the municipalities can gain up to 60% um, energy independence, which means that something like 60% of the energy that is consumed in the city is actually produced in its own land. So what needs to happen if a municipality were interested in moving to this model? So what the municipality needs to do is basically to to look at the data, to look at the electricity consumption and to look at the potential it has uh, on the land that it has that uh, is possible that is relevant for uh, putting uh, solar panels on and um, electricity vehicle uh, stations and to create this kind of work. And afterwards, what it needs to do is to um, to apply a request for the um, Ministry of uh, Interior asking to become a, an energy supplier, a municipal energy supplier. Right now, this does exist, I think, in Kibbutzim and the Arava. Yeah, it's true. But uh, in terms of uh, the, this work is creating something new in terms of uh, big municipalities in the city centers, which are actually the places where most of the energy consumption uh, takes place. And also, the municipalities themselves are very, very dense. So it's, it's much harder in uh, creating um, clean energy. And we're talking about dual use. So you don't just build those huge farms of solar PV, 
which is relatively easy, right? Because we have a lot of land. And we're talking about municipalities that uses the, the limited amount of the land that they have and, and uses them in a dual use. So we're talking about roofs, we're talking about parking lots, port fields, and etc. Donna Cohen, head of the climate and energy at Greenpeace Israel. We're taking this up to return headlines is this song by Shmuli Krauss and Rona Kenan, Kol HaNachalim, All the Rivers Flow to the Sea. Kol
Taking a look at the weather, a local rain is forecast for tomorrow in the north and center of the country until the afternoon. Tuesday, warmer. Temperatures forecast for tonight and tomorrow, Jerusalem 9 to 14, Tel Aviv 16 to 18, Haifa 14 to 15, Sfat 9 to 12, Tiberias 13 to 20, Beersheba 11 to 19, and in a lot from 14 tonight, going up to 25 degrees centigrade tomorrow. Now another look at our major news headlines today. The IDF launches a broader offensive in Khan Yunus as schools reopen in Sterot. Reservist who was wounded in the Gaza explosion that killed three soldiers over the weekend has died of his wounds. Hostage ceasefire talks are at a dead end as Israel holds back a delegation to Cairo talks until Hamas provides a list of living hostages. Prime Minister Netanyahu has ordered the Israeli embassy not to coordinate a visit to Washington by Minister Benny Gantz. The grandson of Hezbollah leader Nasrallah is reportedly killed in an Israeli airstrike against Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon. And Israel is changing the words of a song submitted to the Eurovision contest after it rejected two earlier songs for being too political. The weather warmer with local rain. That's the news. Join us again tomorrow night at 8 p.m. on Kanreka, the foreign languages channel of the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. Watch our 2 p.m. news flash on the Khan English Facebook page. Or you can write to us at khanenglish at khan.org.il. Together with sound engineer Lad Zohar, this is Ariel O'Sullivan wishing you a good evening and shalom from Jerusalem.